From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show that covers the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Department of Veterans Affairs will take up to 12 weeks for a strategic review of its electronic health records program. VA Secretary Dennis McDonough calls the review, quote, necessary after he reviewed results of the program's most recent deployment. FCW reports that deployment was at Mangrand Staff Medical Center in Spokane, Washington in October. Five agencies have a week to report to the House Energy and Commerce Committee on what they know about how the solar winds breach has affected them. Thirteen members of the committee from both parties signed letters to the leaders of Commerce, Energy and Health and Human Services Departments, the Environmental Protection Agency and the National Telecommunications and Information Administration. The letters include an eight-question list of information the members want from the agencies. A former astronaut and U.S. Senator is President Biden's choice to lead NASA. Bill Nelson is a member of the NASA Advisory Council now. Nelson was an astronaut aboard Space Shuttle Columbia. He represented Florida in the House and Senate. A new review of the Office of Personnel Management and its potential merger into the General, uh, General Services Administration is finished. The National Academy of Public Administration says transferring some OPM duties to the Office of Management and Budget and merging others into GSA wouldn't fix the problems at the agency. Jessica Clement is Staff Vice President of Policy and Programs, the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. Jess, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Does this report make any difference one way or the other for actual frontline federal employees like the people that are members of NARF? Well, I certainly hope so. Um, one of the things that struck me, and I know I am one of many guests on your show to talk about this topic, and I'm glad that you guys are giving it so much of attention because I think it is really important, is that nothing here is new. You know, I, I, I read through this report over the weekend, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is anything that you would expect in a report of this nature. Um, and I do think it would have an impact for not only the frontline workers, but your management, your SESers, and then of course the retirees who rely on all the services that OPM provides. Um, I think the question is gonna be if anyone does anything about it. And that's where I wanted to go next. You're on the Hill talking to staffers on an ongoing basis. This report came about as uh, because members of Congress wanted to know what experts like the fellows at Napa thought about this plan and what OPM really needs. Now what happens uh, on the Hill, do you think, in order for this to have some impact and not become a typical Washington report that goes into a binder on somebody's shelf? It's a really good question. And I think it comes down to how those of us um, who advocate on the Hill for issues like this are able to convince members of Congress and their staff that we have a problem. We have a human capital management problem in the federal government. And the longer Congress continues to avoid it, um, the more problems we're gonna see down the road. I mean, this report lays out certain things that have happened in the past that could have been prevented. Let's 2015 data breaches, for example. Okay, so what are we gonna do about it? Are we gonna elevate human capital the way the report says we need to, to build the federal workforce of the future? Or are we just gonna plug along, continuing to do the same thing over and over and over again? So this is something I've been talking about on the Hill with coalition partners for the better part of a year now, even long before this report came out. You know, we spent a lot of time 
pushing back against the merger. NARF testified before Congress on the proposed merger. Okay, great, we stopped the merger, but what are we gonna do next? Just saying OPM shouldn't be merged with OMB and GSA doesn't get us away from the fundamental problems that OPM was and is facing that prompted the merger suggestion in the first place. So we're, we've got this report, time for Congress and this administration to act. So let's, let's say that there's consensus that what the report addressed was not the right answer. The merger was not the right answer. What sounds like you're getting at is we need to figure out what the right answer is before we can move toward it. Am I hearing you correctly? Because everybody, I think, agrees OPM as it exists today isn't ideal. The question becomes what is ideal? Yeah, it's exactly right. And there are a number of things laid out in this report that the administration can do without Congress, right? It can elevate human capital. It can give the OPM director, once she is confirmed, a seat at the table. This administration can tell agencies, listen, the OPM director is the foremost expert on human capital, and we are going to listen to her, of course, assuming she is confirmed. There are other things in this report that Congress has to do. If we are going to modernize OPM's outdated IT systems, if we are going to move to an employee digital record, if we are going to modernize retirement services so individuals do not have to submit paper forms to retire in 2021, that requires funding from Congress. One of the people that tried to do that exact thing and ran up against the funding problem was Linda Springer, the former director of OPM. She's on the program tomorrow night to talk about uh, what she sees in the recommendations of this report. How do you go about, Jess, looking at these recommendations and determining which ones you think have potential for success uh, in Congress that you decide to advocate for? How do, what's that parsing process look like? This is a good question. Again, it's a great question. Um, it's something that we're still discussing internally because it is a fairly lengthy report. It just came out a few days ago and we're, we're looking through it. I approach this um, as the NARF representative from two standpoints. One, human capital in the federal government. How can we promote excellence in public service and elevate the federal workforce and the federal government to be an employer of choice? So that's the first piece of this. Which ones do we want to take to Congress and say, hey, it is time to elevate public service. Our country is facing a number of challenges that we need that only the federal government can address in concert um, with outside groups. This is how we're gonna do it. And the other one is, improving services for OPM's customers, who are my members, who are the NARF members, who rely on healthcare and insurance and retirement services, and who need help navigating the numerous programs that OPM administers. Um, I can tell you that I hear anecdotally all the time, I can't get a hold of OPM. Those people come to NARF um, for help in doing that. I can't find what I need on the OPM website. Can you please help me? So there's really a two-pronged approach that you know we at NARF will take to move some of these recommendations forward and better serve not only OPM's customers, the federal employees and retirees, but also our nation as a whole. Jessica Clement, thanks very much as always. Thanks, Francis. You can find a link to the NAPA report on OPM at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, making the most of data centers across government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, better tracking for what's working and what isn't? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
The Office of Management and Budget has pushed agencies to consolidate data centers and use existing centers more efficiently. The Government Accountability Office finds OMB can do more to track how it's measuring server use. David Hinchman's acting director for information technology and cybersecurity issues at GAO. Dave, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You get right at the crux of this in the beginning of your report. You looked at data center inventories, you looked at cost savings documentation, and data center optimization and strategic plans. What'd you find? So there were three aspects to this, and you, you cottoned onto what those three things are. Uh, we've been doing this work since 2011. This is our 11th report on data centers. Uh, and for the last six years, we've been following a mandate in the Federal IT Acquisition Reform Act that requires us to annually go in and look at OMB's program. We look at exactly what you said. We look at the closures they're reporting, we're looking at their optimization metrics, and we're looking at the savings that resulted from that. Um, and generally, it's it's really a good news story. Um, this year, agencies reported closing over 100 data centers. Almost all agencies met their closure goals. Um, all told, they've closed something like uh, six over 6,000 data centers since this program started. Um, for savings, they reported about $830 million in savings this year for a total of about $6.2 billion since 2012. And metrics is a little bit more of a mixed bag. Uh, seven agencies have completely optimized their data centers that they're required to. Uh, another six have reported great progress in meeting all four of their metrics, and the other agencies continue to improve their performance. It is a good news story, and you're not the only uh, organization across government to, to see it as such. Uh, and but, However, with all due respect to you and your colleagues at GAO, there's usually a but in your work, and the but here, it strikes me, is this. Agencies have excluded approximately 4,500 data centers from their inventories since May 2019. Is that the butt that I always expect to find in GAO work? And if so, where did it come from? For the consolidation numbers, absolutely. And this is an area that continues to be a concern for us. Uh, in 2019, OMB changed the definition of what a data center meant and as a reduce, reduced the scope of the amount of data centers. Included in that is the 4,500 data centers that you mentioned. Um, those are no longer reported in inventories. They're no longer part of DCOI. And that's a concern because all of these facilities, although they generally tend to be small, each of those resent a, excuse me, represent a potential point of vulnerability uh, for cybersecurity or physical access. We think it's incredibly important that agencies continue to track those locations. They don't need to be part of the consolidation initiative, but they need, do need to be monitored. And I think, for example, of the significance of that, um, of those 4,500, our calculations are that about 850 are going to stay open, but at least 13 of those are facilities that are at least 5,000 square feet. So the impact wouldn't be tremendous, it doesn't sound like, if those numbers went back into the metrics that you talked about a moment ago. It doesn't sound like they're skewing the numbers tremendously, are they? No, and, and I think that what's important here is, and we made a recommendation to OMB about this, these facilities don't need to be included in the data center consolidation initiative. But I think it is very important that they continue to be tracked both for transparency so that agencies remember that they have these facilities and can be mindful of the potential vulnerabilities that they represent. One of the broader things here, I think, is, is uh, lexicon, is the, is the terminology that we use. For years, we talked about this as data center consolidation, and now the very top 
title of your work, data center optimization. What's the difference to someone in your position looking at this uh, from an audit analytical perspective uh, between those two terms? So when the program started back in 2010, uh, it was very focused on consolidation. There were, I think the, the peak of the inventory was somewhere over 12,000 data centers. And as you might imagine, a lot of those are extraneous and don't need to be there. As agencies have gotten better about shedding their excess inventory and becoming more efficient with the remaining facilities, the focus of the program has really shifted from consolidation to optimization. Uh, and we agree with that. I think that's the right thing to do. Agencies are getting down to the core facilities that they really need and turning their attention to making them run as efficiently as possible. Um, you write uh, regarding recommendations here that GAO reiterates agencies need to address the 53 recommendations previously made to them that haven't yet been uh, uh, implemented. Obviously, we don't have time to talk about 53 recommendations, but are there common themes among what agencies should do in those 53 recommendations, Dave? Absolutely. Um, they generally, uh, a lot of them are centered around the metrics. Um, that's the greatest area improvement for agencies to make. We think that by implementing our recommendations, they'll be better positioned to run their facilities as efficiently as possible. Uh, there are also a few scattered recommendations around savings and making a better effort to consolidate data centers. Um, very quickly, 30 seconds left. What would you like to see agencies do to prevent backsliding? Uh, they need to stay on it. They've done a great job. I think that should be acknowledged. A lot of people's hard work has gone into achieving the numbers we talked about. Uh, 6,500 closures, 6.2 billion in savings. So let's keep the eye on the prize, shift the focus to making the remaining facilities work as well as they possibly can. Dave Hinchman, thanks very much. Thank you. You can find a link to Dave's report at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, churn at the top of the Pentagon's Cyber Certification Board, what it means for contractors and for the Pentagon. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The board that oversees the Defense Department's Cybersecurity Maturity Model certifications losing two members. Leaders of the board say it's part of the normal churn of an all-volunteer organization. Eric Crucius is partner at Holland and Knight. Eric, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Does this turnover surprise you at all? Is this a big deal or anything that people that follow CMMC are concerned about? You know, I don't really think it's uh, that big a deal. I mean, you have as you just mentioned, it's an all-volunteer board. Um, they have a lot to do. CMMC is a huge undertaking. And all these folks have full-time day jobs that they're balancing along with their CMMC board responsibilities. So it's not at all really surprising, at least to me, that there is going to be turnover on the board. I mean, obviously, ideally, we'd see the board continue and stay uh, throughout the CMMC rollout process, but I think that's a lot to ask of the folks on the board. We're seeing the General Services Administration adding CMMC requirements now to some of its GWACs. What does that mean for the companies that want to sell, not just to the Defense Department, but that want to sell across government? It's really interesting because, as you know, um, like a GSA schedule, um, if the clause is in the, in the GSA master contract and it's not kind of taken out um, during the task order phase or delivery order phase, um, it's going to be in your contract. So 
Um, I'd be interested to see if they put some kind of limitation on the CMMC clause in the GSA schedule where it only applies if DOD says it applies or if the agency says it applies. Because, I mean, I think we've we've seen this coming for a long time that um, if this DOD CMMC rollout begins to be successful, uh, civilian agencies will start adopting it. I could even see the private sector starting to adopt it. So this could be the start of that trend. Um, but it'd be interesting to see if kind of GSA kind of put some limitations in when the CMMC clause would apply, because for now, uh, the DOD folks have a, a say in, in whether it applies to a particular contract. When you talk about the private sector potentially adopting it, what does that mean? I mean, it means that um, companies that have no, um, you know, no uh, business doing business with the federal government or have no desire to may have to go out and get a CMMC certification, you know, have a third party uh, certifier come in and assess their their cybersecurity systems. Um, and that's nothing that's been formally announced, of course, but it, it just seems like we're moving as as a country in that direction where, you know, there's there are these security breaches and we're desperately finding a way to stop them. And this if this works as a way to kind of mitigate uh, all the cybersecurity breaches we're seeing may turn out to be a standard that uh, the private sector will follow. We keep hearing about the possibility of reciprocity for companies that have FedRAMP compliance, uh, that have FedRAMP authorizations. Anything new there? I mean, the latest I heard is that at the end of the fiscal year, we'll see some kind of um, guidance document that will allow um, um, the, the DOD or, or the assessors to take uh, FedRAMP certification into account. We have FedRAMP, which allows for uh, POAMs, uh, program, you know, changes uh, or or correcting shortfalls along the way if there is a shortfall in a cybersecurity assessment. CMMC is a go no go. You know, if you don't if you don't check all the boxes, so to speak, and it's not just a check the box uh, endeavor, but if you don't check all the boxes, um, you don't get that CMMC certification where you can um, have some uh, plans of action milestones under FedRAMP. So it'll be interesting to see how they marry those two systems together. Um, but the, the, the latest is that, that FedRAMP will be kind of the guidance on using FedRAMP within CMMC will be coming out later this year. Are you hearing anything else from your clients about CMMC, the issues that they're having or maybe successes that they're having in navigating the process? Or is it still too early to tell that? It's a little bit too early. I think there is, um, you know, as this ramps up, I think there are a lot of contractors who are concerned that they're not going to be able to get a certification or, or get in line to get a certification because there aren't a lot of assessors out there right now um, who are able to do assessments. You know, and so um, you know, contractors are concerned that they want to bid on a contract that's going to have CMMC in it. How are they going to go about and, uh, to do that if they if they can't get in line for a certification? Then another concern I'm having, of course, is about cost. Um, a lot of my clients are small businesses. And they're concerned about how much it's going to cost them just to do business with the federal government now. I think everyone agrees that we need to do something to stop uh, all these cyber incidents we're having across the across industries. Um, but, um, of course, cost is always a factor for these companies. It's one thing, Eric, to say, well, this might not work for us, whether you know, it's a small business that finds CMMC too expensive. It's another thing to say, instead, we should do this. Do we have any sense of what do this instead might be in the case of companies that have a challenge dealing with CMMC, uh, the uh, certifications? No, that's um, something I've been saying about CMMC. Um, you know, I don't think it's perfect, but I'm not sure what is a better system right now. Um, I think obviously the self-certifications were not working in some instances where um, contractors perhaps were certifying, not knowing exactly what they were certifying to. 
And if you didn't have uh, a certain level of information CUI, you didn't really have to make any kind of certification. And that doesn't mean that the information that the contractors held wasn't important. So, um, you know, I don't necessarily see a way around this except for some maybe minor restructuring about the role and the functions of the board and, and DOD and civilian agencies eventually. But I don't think there's a better system out there than CMMC right now. I want to go back to that board and the, the churn at the board that we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, Eric. Is there a point where one should say or could say there's more turnover there, there's, there's more there than meets the eye? I mean, it's possible. I mean, one thing that'll be interesting to see is they're hiring professional staff. They're hiring a CEO, essentially. Um, so I'd be a lot more concerned if that professional staff turned over because they're going to be the ones moving forward who are implementing the CMMC policy and are essentially making sure that the, the ship runs smoothly. And the board usually takes kind of more of a backseat overseer role, right, in these kinds of organizations. And here they've had to take that lead role. So once once the staff is hired, including the leadership of, 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 the, of the body, the accreditation body, um, and there was some turnover with that professional staff, I'd be pretty concerned. With the board, I, I can understand why that there is there is this turnover just because they have these day jobs, and this is a very demanding job, a lot of scrutiny, a lot of criticism from folks. Um, on the other hand, I could see why some folks are concerned because we have this really important initiative that's out there and the, the cast of folks who are helping implement it um, does change. Eric Crucius, thanks very much as always. Thank you can read more about the changes at the board at govmatters.tv slash resources. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website, too. And you get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC 7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.